0: means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.
1: Now, Edward R. Murrow and the voices of Douglas MacArthur, Bernard M. Baruch, George C. Marshall, Andre Bashinsky, Thomas E. Dewey, The Duchess of Windsor, Branch Rickey, Judy Holliday, Carl Sandburg, Warren Austin, and more than 50 other people in the news in the premiere performance of Hear It Now, a full-hour program to be heard tonight and every week at this time.
2: Will there be peace? Or
3: war. In a world of brute force, there is freedom only for the brave. If we are not prepared to fight for our freedom, then we shall surely lose it.
4: There is one thing all of us here today enjoy in common. We have all cooked a meal for the man we love.
1: The Columbia Broadcasting System and 173 affiliated radio stations present a document for ear based on the week's news and the men and women who made it. All the voices and sounds you will hear are real and are presented as they were spoken in the heat and confusion of a world in crisis. It is broadcast in the hope that the collection of these scraps of sound into a weekly recorded history may add another dimension to our understanding in the difficult days ahead. Here is the editor of Hear It Now, the distinguished reporter and news analyst, Edward R. Murrow.
5: This has been a week indeed. Because this program will end with a brief oral biography of General Douglas MacArthur, and because his dynamic personality is one of the most dominant and controversial of the present decade, we should like to begin with his voice as it sounded on a day of high hope and victory...
4: It is my earnest hope, and indeed the hope of all mankind, that from this solemn occasion a better world shall emerge out of the blood and carnage of the past, a world dedicated to the dignity of man and the fulfillment of his most cherished wish for freedom, tolerance, and justice.
5: That was Douglas MacArthur on the sunlit deck of the battleship Missouri in Tokyo Bay on September 2nd, 1945. In the 2,000 days from that day to this, Americans watched the warm glow of peace turn to Cold War. And this week fought desperately to keep the Cold War from turning into the white heat of total war.
6: That little police action over there, which they call it back in the state, could stop a World War III. We would all fight. We want to get it over in a hurry and get back home.
5: 2,000 days ago, the G.I. who said that in Korea was a freshman in high school. Warren Austin was a little-known senator from the rock-ribbed state of Vermont. And the Chanjin Reservoir and Lake Success were not yet part of our lexicon. But this 50th week of 1950 saw the graduation of the high school freshman, and he would not be home for Christmas. And the Chanjin Reservoir was a word to write down next to Guadalcanal and Wake and Iwo Jima and the Bow. And Warren Austin, who described himself as a country lawyer from the Green Mountains, was a senator for an entire nation and speaking for the kids who would not be home and for the rest of us when he rose up and asked the United Nations, will there be peace or war? Here is conversation in a command post in the wind-swept northeast of the Korean Peninsula. The voices you hear will be the liaison between an observation post and an artillery position as they try to locate an enemy gun in the hills.
6: So we're getting some incoming stuff in here. Just direct fire, and
7: it seems to be coming from my right front. Yeah. I can't pick up the flash of it over there. I, I took what I thought was a gun position under fire here, and whatever construction was there is no longer there.
4: Just a minute. The asthma, doctor.
8: We've
4: had too many people on the skyline. Yeah, they've got to
5: in. That explosion was incoming mail. The Chanjin Reservoir is some 300 miles north of the Naktong perimeter of five months ago. In winter, it is ice-locked. It is within the shadows of the great hydroelectric plants which used to serve North Korean industry... and which now feed into Manchuria and even the Russian maritime provinces. On Thanksgiving Eve, U.S. and Korean forces were fanning out around the southern end of the reservoir. The 17th Regiment of the U.S. 7th Division had reached the Yalu River... and could easily look into the fir and spruce forests of Manchuria. The North Korean army was all but destroyed... Reports of Chinese red movements toward the border had been rumored for so long that they had been discounted. The weather was our biggest enemy. But last week, hundreds of thousands of red Chinese swarmed out of the forests. And as General MacArthur said, one war ended, and another began.
9: We just had to move out.
6: Too many of them. Look like you kill one, three takes his place main thing they use is the same old tactics the Japanese did. That's running 40,000 men through where, where ordinarily they'd send about 200.
5: On the west side of the peninsula, overwhelming hordes of Chinese communists drove our line back toward Ponyang and then back to the 38th parallel once they had come. At the reservoir, snow was falling and manufacturing sheets of ice when the 1st Marine Division, two regiments of the 7th Division, and parts of the British commandos, realized that the Reds had flung a trap around them, had cut off their position and their escape route to the sea. The Marines were retreating, but the enemy lined their escape route to Koto and hungnam Nam like bandits along a stagecoach route.
10: So we we'll run our position up there. We've got four of the boys. They had to leave and
6: they, they turned our the water cooler on us. They, they took our machine gun and it on us. I was trying to get... Ammo out, so they couldn't have it. And they cut loose. There was nothing nobody could do because they had us surrounded there, and there was only
4: very few makes. Just want to thank the Lord. It could have been worse.
5: In sub-zero temperature, the weary, frozen column of twenty thousand troops marched down the iced ribbon of road, through the great water gorges, toward Koto. The dead lying unburied, the wounded carrying the wounded. Many of our wounded were abandoned by the Chinese
7: without their parkers or their shoes, and they froze. This also happened to those perimeter guards who were caught, stripped, and who froze to death before they could reach safety.
5: The badly wounded were evacuated by air from the 1,500-foot runway hacked out of the hillside at Koto. The rest of the column continued the long walk to the beach at Hung Nam, where parts of the fleet waited.
6: was told by... Yeah. our officers that we were was being hit from three sides. I mean, every way but the rear. And later on, we found out we were being hit from the rear, too.
5: When the weather permitted, and often when it didn't, the Marines at least could look up and see their air support. The Air Force ran constant interference for the broken field below, dropped sufficient supplies, including even a few bridge spans, and on the way home, shot up enemy troop installations.
8: My Ford 50s went out, and I received a direct hit. From a 20-millimeter ACAC, my
6: right engine uh, immediately started to burn, so I pulled up off the treetops and
8: uh, told my crew chief and gunner to bail out, and they bailed, and then I followed them. We all went out at about 700 feet. We uh, were approximately 10 miles behind enemy lines, so a little help of God and a little bit of fast running, we evaded the enemy and were back flying within two days again.
5: We at home waited and watched and devoured two editions of every paper and heard the latest radio news as we ate our meals and tried to prepare ourselves for the possible annihilation of the 1st Marine Division. Finally, on Tuesday, the long line of men reached the sea. Their casualties were less than 3,500. As General Marshall put it, it was one of the worst weeks in U.S. history.
11: Today, the military situation is grave. More grave, I very much fear, than it was even in those most difficult days of eight years ago.
5: And while sadness and bewilderment and quiet rage dominated the American scene, and the official casualty figures approached 40,000, it remained for a wounded Marine reaching an evacuation center to raise a voice in humility. It came to us by three shortwave relays. Korea is a long way off, and the atmospheric conditions are bad. But here is a personal battle communique well worth straining your ear for. Listen.
12: The Chinese were so uh, around us like bees. There's a million of them, at least. How I got out from that convoy, I'll never know. God evidently was with us all the time. There was few that did get out, and the few that didn't, the people that didn't get out, uh, well, God was with them, too, because most of those were dead.
5: At Lake Success, in the arena of words, where the peace may well be won or lost, a representative of the hordes that had poured down from the Yalu River sat down at the Council of Nations. The staccato, high-pitched voice of Red China's General Wu blasted out at the United States in the West in a barrage of words and unending paragraphs that sounded disturbingly like an oriental Bashinsky. And the wheels of the United Nations, ready to turn on the problem of its young life, choked and coughed, unable to process the debate at hand. Finally, this week, General Wu permitted himself the freedom of a trip to a New York bookstore, a talk with Trigva Lee, and a series of conferences with Sir Benegal Rao, the delegate from India.
13: I asked Ambassador Wu whether I was right in my view that the Peking government did not want a war with the United Nations or even with the United States of America. His answer was, most certainly, we do not want a war.
5: Tuesday, Sir Benigal Rao presented a ceasefire plan to the United Nations. Whether this had General Wu's tacit endorsement or not is unknown. The Soviet bloc was against it, and the United States endorsed it as the Indian delegates spoke for 13 Asian and Arabian delegates.
13: Mr. Chairman, resolution by Afghanistan, Burma, Egypt, India, Indonesia, Iran, Iraq, Lebanon, Pakistan, Philippines, Saudi Arabia, Syria, and Yemen. The General Assembly viewing with grave concern the situation in the Far East. Anxious that immediate steps should be taken to prevent the conflict in Korea spreading to other areas and to put an end to the fighting in Korea itself and that further steps should then be taken for a peaceful settlement of existing issues in accordance with the purposes and principles of the United Nations requests the President of the General Assembly constitute a group of three persons, including himself, to determine the basis on which a satisfactory ceasefire in Korea can be arranged and to make recommendations to the General Assembly as soon as possible.
5: The resolution did not call for a ceasefire. Merely a committee of three to draw up plans for a ceasefire. Warren Austin of the United States spoke for the West.
2: I'm glad to see that the representative of India recognizes that a cessation of hostilities is not a static act. It should not place United Nations forces at a disadvantage. Let me assure you that my country is glad to have a channel opened up for such an effort through the United Nations. Cease fire and protection of armed forces and of the Korean population is the first step. It should be executed, finished, before trying other steps such as political issues. The United States will vote for it.
5: The representative
1: of the Soviet Union. Jacob Malik vociferously opposed the resolution,
5: called for the immediate removal of UN troops from all of Korea and the 7th Fleet from the Formosa Straits, called the ceasefire resolution a British American trick to give us time to regroup before attacking Manchuria. Here is Mr. Malik's interpreter.
4: Is it clear that under these circumstances, the proposal for a ceasefire is a hypocritical, camouflaged intention? To obtain a breathing spell for further military action, to get uh, to uh, to uh, get their broken ranks into order again, and, sub- and then to continue armed intervention.
5: On Thursday, after interminable listening, Sir Benegal Rao's resolution was finally brought to a vote, by a vote of fifty-two to five. The ceasefire resolution was passed by the General Assembly, with Russia and her satellites voting against it. Whether the resolution or the ceasefire order it might soon create would ever affect the actual state of combat along the 38th parallel, it would go a long way in determining the future value of the United Nations if it is ever going to emerge from its present state of
12: depression and despair and endless name calling. My country is not member of any bloc. It is a member of the United Nations and wishes to remain so
3: morning papers, daily news, mirror paper. They are morning papers. In New York City,
5: where the headlines are always earliest and blackest, and the mood of the people seeps out onto the streets and drifts out across the nation, the reaction to the Korean disaster and the possibility of a world war accentuated the fear and hatred of communism. A group of New York news dealers rose up and refused to sell The Daily Worker, the house organ of the Communist Party.
6: My name is Mrs. Barney Sigaloff. My husband and I operate a newsstand at 96 and Broadway. I do not sell The Daily Worker anymore for two reasons. One because I am losing business by selling it. Second is my own personal reason. I think the daily worker is like a cancer of the United States and every other country. It has started with a small area in Europe and has spread all over the world until it will be so big that no doctor or any other organization can cut that out of this country or any other country. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a clerk at a newsstand, and my name is James Flaherty. The reason, the reason I do not like to, to sell a daily, daily work is because uh, it is against all the principles of America. If, if, if we went over to Europe and tried to sell an American worker, we'd be all jailed or shot. So that's my views. I'm an I'm a, I'm a ex serviceman, and I don't go for nothing that's forced on us.
5: The New York Supreme Court was studying the problem and would hand down a decision on whether the news dealers could be allowed the freedom not to sell the worker. In San Francisco's Chinatown, American Chinese felt the tension and wondered what war with China might do to the freedom of one of the most loyal minority groups in the land. And in Roosevelt County, Montana, at Wolf Point, just a few miles from the Canadian border, an American draft board went on strike.
6: Whereas the men directing the policies of the present government of the United States seem disposed to send troops too poorly equipped and too few in number to cope with the present fighting in Korea. And, whereas, we consider this to be neither a sporting proposition to see how few troops can hold out against overwhelming odds, nor the proper time for playing power politics by sacrificing a few thousand men in a mere token fight... Rather, we consider this a serious and all-out war in defense of American ideals and liberties. Therefore, be it resolved that we are unwilling to draft any more men into the armed services until such time as the government of the United States is willing to use the entire resources of the United States, including the atomic bomb, in support of these men.
5: That was Belden Reed Taylor talking for the Roosevelt County Draft Board, named for Theodore Roosevelt, they say. Governor John W. Bonner said their strike was attacking unfavorable publicity to the state of Montana, and he called for their resignation.
10: If we don't want to follow out our oaths of office
4: and instead want to become bleacher quarterbacks, the only decent thing to do is to resign and then criticize all we want because I believe in free speech.
5: The governor couldn't get the draft board to resign, but by Wednesday... Draft Director Hershey entered the case and quickly suspended two of the three members. But draft board member Taylor's petulance was not the only case of national short temper. And the gentleman from Montana seemed to think there was a link between the two.
7: Well,
6: in view of today's news, I honestly think that if Mr. Truman had talked to Stalin three years ago, like he talked to music critic Hume yesterday, that this resolution would never have been necessary.
5: If this program presumes to be a weekly news review, we have to make room for the letters of Harry S. Truman. Because we also hope to cover the field of American newspapers, magazines, and radio, we have chosen to include the President's letters under a special department. Uh, We have asked Don Hollenbeck to edit this brief section for us. The public and private
14: correspondence of Harry S. Truman is rapidly becoming material for footnotes in the history books, maybe even more than footnotes. Perhaps we're seeing the deliberate shaping of a legend after the earthy model of Andrew Jackson. As one reference work describes the seventh president, violent, quarrelsome, and astonishingly indiscreet. But nothing Andrew Jackson wrote and put in the mail could be any more violent or astonishingly indiscreet than the letter the 33rd president wrote in his own hand the other day and mailed to Paul Hume, the music critic of the Washington Post. The performance of the press in making public this private correspondence raises some questions about propriety, responsibility, and the invasion of privacy, even though one of the parties to the invasion is the President of the United States. Mr. Hume's own editors at the Washington Post at first declined to print the letter, even in an expurgated version, perhaps considering the differences of opinion over Miss Truman's singing ability to be a personal matter between Mr. Truman and Mr. Hume. Perhaps because they felt that to make public so astonishingly indiscreet a display of temper and bad taste on the part of the President of the United States, to hold him up to ridicule on a personal matter, could serve no useful purpose, even though it undoubtedly was a whacking big news story. And, of course, it was at that time by no means certain that the letter was authentic. But Mr. Hume was showing that letter around. He wondered if any of his fellow critics had received similar protests from an outraged father. Apparently, none had, but Milton Berliner, critic of the Washington Daily News, told his editors about the letter, and they took a different point of view from the management of the post. Berliner was sent back for another look at it, and as the story is told, he memorized it, which is quite a feat of memory at that. A White House reporter was shown the letter and gave it as his considered opinion that the handwriting certainly resembled the president's. And on that basis, the Daily News published its story, which, of course, did not say directly that it had been written, the letter had been written by HST of 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue, but it was enough. And when the White House later confirmed that Mr. Truman had written a letter to Mr. Hume, the hoorah was on, with the rest of the press and radio making the most of the sensation. Once the story was in the open with confirmation from the White House... It is indisputable that it was the day's number one news item so far as public interest and shock was concerned. And it's somewhat difficult to understand the lofty attitude of our esteemed colleague, Elmer Davis, who ignored it completely because he said there was much more important news to be reported that day. Most newsmen would argue that the president's letter to Hume for all the concern it might cause was in the legitimate field of public information, but there does remain room for some debate on that question of the invasion of privacy on a purely personal matter. But it is very tenuous, certainly. Although the Washington Post editors had very high-mindedly at first declined to print the letter, once it was in the open, they found room for it on their first page, although with a curious twist. They didn't print their own story. They reprinted the article from the Daily News. Our own favorite comment on some of the recent utterances and writings of President Truman, the atomic bomb statement, the Marine letter, the John L. Lewis letter, the Hume letter, the Hebert letter, comes from a young man who keeps our shoes at a high degree of polish here at CBS. You know, he said,
5: making his polishing rag crack, all this don't encourage me a bit. The President's meetings with Prime Minister Attlee were concluded, and Mr. Attlee was back in London telling his cabinet where Britain and the United States agreed and where the area of a disagreement had occurred. But up until tonight, neither the British people nor the American people had been given a full report. The American public read and listened and waited, and outside of the constant monotony of the politicians on both sides indulging in the usual character assassination, there was no strong voice, either here or in London which sang out to rally the people and perhaps steady the frayed nerves of the bewildered taxpayer. Secretary of Defense Marshall came closest.
11: Tonight I would caution you that this is the time, this is the time for a calm determination, a strong resolution to do what seems wise, to protect the future security of the free world. It is no time, it is no time for violent emotions. It is very important to remember that we went into Korea to sustain the United Nations in its great purpose of enforcing the peace. Our purpose, therefore, was one of the highest moral principles. We must not be deterred. We must not be deterred by temporary military
5: Reverses. And in Washington, one of General Marshall's assistants was going through a now familiar ordeal by accusation. Anna Rosenberg, one of the most skilled labor and manpower experts in the nation, had been appointed assistant secretary of defense. Unanimously, Senator Russell's committee prepared to ratify the appointment. A self-professed ex-communist, Ralph DeSola, pointed an accusing finger at Mrs. Rosenberg and said, She is a communist. I saw her at a meeting of the John Reed clubs in 1935. Anna Rosenberg denied the attack categorically. Said there are 46 Anna Rosenbergs in the New York phone book. DeSola's charges collapsed completely. Mrs. Rosenberg was confirmed unanimously. The character assassin had missed.
4: When the general sent for me to ask me to take this job, I tried very hard to tell him all the reasons why I thought it might be difficult. Some of my own deficiencies which there are many, and he was very patient and very kind and said, I'm looking for a person with integrity and ability. I don't care whether it's a man or a woman.
5: There were other women in the news this week. Mrs. Al Jolson took her son Asa to Washington to receive the Medal of Merit which General Marshall presented to the late Al Jolson. Elizabeth Taylor left Nicholas Hilton. Faye Emerson got married. And the Duchess of Windsor ended the current flock of separation rumors by kissing the Duke eight times. That's what it said in my paper, at the gangplank. And then professing that the woman he loves, loves to cook for him.
4: There is one thing all of us here today enjoy in common. We have all cooked a meal for the man we love. In fact, I wrote a cookbook in 1942. And I'm happy to say that the Duke is a very appreciative husband. As a southerner, I have been brought up to know about a good table. And that is why I'm particularly delighted to be here today. And perhaps to pick up a few tricks as well. Harry. What?
6: What's this business we're in down here, could you tell me?
4: What do you mean we? Oh,
3: I figure
6: I'm a sort of partner in a way.
3: A silent partner.
11: So shut up!
5: The voices you just heard were those of Judy Holliday and Broderick Crawford in a short scene from the new motion picture Born Yesterday, which will open across the country in a few days. Here are a few more scenes from the picture and a brief criticism of the film by our film editor, Bill Leonard.
8: The best pictures of 1950 and the outstanding performances that helped make them unusual have involved some lusty characters. A faded movie queen who purchases a young lover, Gloria Swanson, in Sunset Boulevard. A temperamental and alcoholic stage star, two-timed by her protege. That was Betty Davis in All About Eve. An abysmally ignorant ex-chorus cutie, fed and housed by a crooked business tycoon, Judy Holliday in Born Yesterday. Broadway has already been exposed to Born Yesterday and Miss Holiday as Billy Dawn. The Garson Canaan play ran for three years. Now, thanks to an excellent movie version, the whole nation will shortly share the fun. Born Yesterday is funny. It's also sentimental, irreverent, sophisticated, agreeably racy, and a considerable distortion of the original play. When Paul Douglas was millionaire junk dealer Harry Brock on Broadway, he was outlandish and a bum and a crook, He was a man, and you liked him somehow. On the other hand, the movie Harry Brock, played by Broad Crawford, is a ranting, vicious ogre, a purple villain. As for Judy Holliday, the kept Corrine who finds true love through education, she becomes the central character in the picture. Let her tell you what kind of a character.
4: I wasn't only in the chorus. I spoke lines. I'm with them. Ask anybody! I
6: could have been a star, probably, if I'd have stuck to it. But Harry didn't want me being in the show. He didn't want to share me with the general
8: public. Miss Holiday's performance is high comedy. Thanks to William Holden, who's hired to reform her, she gets educated a little. She becomes a lady somewhat, but she remains a woman to say the least. And like any woman worth her salt, she's sensitive about her age, particularly age 30, as you'll hear in this next bit from the Born Yesterday soundtrack involving Miss Holiday and Mr. Holden. Billy, nobody's born
12: smart. You know what the stupidest thing on earth is? An infant. Well, you're going to guess babies all of a sudden. Nothing. I've got nothing against a brain that's three weeks old and empty. But after it hangs around for 30 years without absorbing anything, I begin to wonder about it.
4: What makes you think I'm 30? I didn't mean you were Oh, yes, you did. I swear. Does somebody know how to get me sore? I'm sorry. 30? Do I have a to you? No. Or what'd you say for? I don't know. How old are you? 29.
8: If Born Yesterday is high comedy, an MGM Christmas present to the countryside called Watch the Birdie is low. Red Skelton is the star... And in this one, he impersonates a simple-minded cameraman, following up earlier successes as a simple-minded brush salesman and a simple-minded cab driver. In addition, Mr. Skelton plays his own father and his own grandfather. Drawing the line just in time, I thought, Arlene Dahl plays his girl, and charming she is too. Worshippers at the Skelton Shrine are likely to enjoy Watch the Birdie, as a clear example of why men feast on turkeys instead of vice versa. Not recommended.
5: That was Bill Leonard, reviewing Born Yesterday and Watch the Birdie. The next voice you hear will be that of Carl Sandburg, American poet and biographer of Lincoln, speaking from his farm in Flat Rock, North Carolina.
7: Freedom is everybody's job. Everybody's freedom's job. Jobs are everybody's freedom. When freedom shrieks, everybody should listen. And everybody should be free to do what? When freedom flits, then what? And should the question be asked continuously or constantly, like this? Who paid for my freedom? And what the price? And am I somehow beholden? We have asked Mr. Sandberg to tell
5: us two of his poems on Hear It Now... because this is a time for great oratory or great wisdom... and we seem to have little oratory to brace us these days. If we needed to hang Mr. Sandberg's appearance here on a news peg... We might say he has a new book just published, a collection of all his poems. And what better way to review them than in the voice of one of the few poets who reads as well as he writes. Now, Mr. Sandberg and the people. Yes.
7: The people will live on. The learning and blundering people will live on. They will be tricked and sold and again sold. And go back to the nourishing earth or root holds the people so peculiar in renewal and comeback you can't laugh off their capacity to take it the steel mill sky is alive the fire breaks in a zigzag shot on a gunmetal gloaming man's a long time coming man will yet When, brother, the earth over may yet line up with brother. This old anvil, the people, yes. This old anvil laughs at many broken hammers. There are men who can't be bought. There are women beyond purchase. The fire born are at home in fire. The stars make no noise. You can't hinder the wind from blowing. Time is a great teacher. Who can live without hope? In the dark. With a great bundle of grief, the people march. In the night, and overhead a shovel of stars for keeps, the people march. Where to, what next? Where to, what next?
1: Based on the week's news, and told of the actual voices of the men and women who made it. The program continues immediately after this pause for station identification. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. This is Hear It Now, a weekly document for ear based on the week's news and featuring Edward R. Murrow. All the voices you hear are real and are broadcast as they were heard in the heat and confusion of a world in crisis. Now, once again, Edward R. Murrow. The President of the United
5: States will speak to us in one hour. He will speak on the most important problem facing the American people this week. The Mobilization of Our Nation. It is, with Korea, the biggest story of the week. The specter of mobilization was not a pleasant one to most Americans. Less than 2,000 days had elapsed since most controls and bureaus of the last war had ended. We did not look forward to ration stamps and price controls and perhaps frozen wages and empty shelves. But we wanted it straight and right from the shoulder. Tonight, the issue is still clouded with indecision and politics. Walter Ruther spoke for his auto workers, but with some reservations.
9: I want to say to the committee that we demonstrated that free labor could outproduce slave labor the last time, and we are prepared to demonstrate that again. Because we believe that the American people, the American workers, the farmers the people in every walk of life are prepared to do the kind of a job that must be done. I think the members of this committee will appreciate the fact that there are there are no substitutes for price control. The only way you can control prices is to control prices. And yet, here we are drifting, drifting, drifting. We are not getting effective price control. We are going to fight with all the power we have to get equity because we think the only way you can mobilize a free people is on the basis of equality of sacrifice. If you freeze prices up here... And wages here. You haven't got equity. And that's precisely where the situation stands today.
5: Mr. Ruther was not yet ready to freeze wages. And many industries were not yet ready to freeze prices. General Motors and Ford announced 5% price increases. The government asked them not to. The corporation said they had to. They would. Many people wanted something done about prices, priorities, freezes, and mobilization. But Senator William Jenner of Indiana said we were rushing things.
12: At this moment, those who have led us into this terrible crisis are preparing to declare a state of national emergency and to demand the surrender of whatever freedom, resources, wealth, and manpower the American people have left without clarifying our national objectives, without defining the strategic areas, the defense of which is necessary to our security and without making any effort to remove from office those parties who have been responsible for our predicament. Senator
2: Jenner
5: was not willing to go down the line for mobilization, but he did not reflect the opinion of the Republican Party. Governor Thomas E. Dewey last night came out for complete mobilization.
3: In a world of brute force, there is freedom only for the brave. If we are not prepared to fight for our freedom, then we shall surely lose it. We can beat Russia five to one in production, but we can't save our freedom with automobiles or washing machines. Nothing less than immediate economic mobilization of our country will meet the threat that faces us. This mobilization of our productive forces is the very heart of our struggle for survival. In all this effort, we must rally the total resources of our nation. And the greatest of all those resources are the men and women of America. We should establish at once general registration for national service, including all Americans, both men and women, above the age of 17. The crisis we face is total. America will never wage a preventive war, and it should not. But we cannot sit idly by and allow the free world to be bled to death by the Oriental torture of a thousand cuts. Let's get busy and exploit the rottenness of Soviet Russia. Let's make our propaganda offensive mean something. Where Russia sends one movie showing they're saving the world, let us send ten good ones. Where they spend a million dollars on sabotage, let's us spend two million dollars on sabotage. Where they have the best spy system in the world, let us, for heaven's sake, get twice as good a spy system instead of practically none at all. The hour is very late. I don't know how late. Whether we still have a day or a year or two years, not a second should be lost.
5: Last night, the president named Charles E. Wilson of GE to direct all war production. Whatever the president has to say tonight, most of the statesmen and politicians and all of the people seem ready for it. But there was one man, chronically ahead of his time, ...who called out for total mobilization last July 26th. That was the day General MacArthur made his second visit to the Korean front. The day he said, our forces will have new heartaches and setbacks... ...but I was never more confident of victory. On that day, the voice of Elder Statesman and Prophet Bernard M. Baruch... ...was heard by members of the Senate Banking Committee.
0: Before the peace is won, we shall have to come to this mobilization. It will never be easier to do... Than now. Far from being a source of hardship, the mobilization I envision would substantially strengthen this country. It would minimize the actual denials we would have to undergo. It would reduce the risk of a third world war by serving notice to the world that our tremendous economic potential is ready to be thrown against any aggressor if necessary. That is the test which confronts us, not only this country, but all of the free peoples of the world. It's
5: the choice of peace or butter, of mobilizing our strength now, while peace can still be saved, of clinging
0: to petty wants and petty profits, impairing our freedom and our civilization.
5: This week, you talked about mobilization. And if you were a ball fan, you talked about mobilization and baseball. Here is my CBS colleague, Red Barber, to tell the story of baseball, mobilization, and the case of Happy Chandler.
10: This was a week of much sound and fury in sports. Shortly after the Red Sox and the White Sox swung their five-man deal, which certainly strengthened the Boston Achilles' heel... pitching staff, barely had the assembled minor leagues of baseball voice their vigorous complaints against major league broadcasting and telecasting, hardly had the expensively controversial bonus rule received its death knell, than the boom was lured on Commissioner Chandler by the major league club owners, or by enough of them to deny the commissioner a new seven-year contract. Chandler was supposed to be a shoe-in. As it stands now, Commissioner Chandler has a contract that extends until May 1952. The owners have tried to buy it up. The commissioner has refused and said that he would stay in office until the last second of his present term. As we'd say in Brooklyn, this is a real good rhubarb. Even though the week was explosive in baseball, hanging over all sports was the potential of a world explosion. Commissioner Chandler gave a somewhat pessimistic interview that many feel caused several club owners to vote against him. I asked Branch Rickey, one of the eldest statesmen of baseball and of sports, what about the approach of national mobilization?
12: Well, Red, baseball is an American game, an integral part of our life in this country. Professional baseball is a business, but if it is anything worthwhile at all, it is a business of service. And now the war is taking our young men. It should... It must. If we can help it, tears must not ever be continuous. Sorrow must not be habitual. We must keep our morale high. You can't win games, and you can't win a war without a high morale. If baseball doesn't sense that obligation, it shouldn't be. This game of baseball is typically American, and it must and will lend itself fully and unselfishly, of course, to the overall purposes of our government.
11: I think on this basis
12: that baseball will properly endure.
5: Each week, one or more shows open in the small, dusty Rococo theaters along Broadway. We decided that to review these plays for an entire nation was not a job for a sophisticated New York drama critic. We needed something nearer to the average guy, a cab driver or someone. So we tried a cab driver, and he just wasn't very good. So we're trying the next best thing. The Columbia Network's new drama critic, Mr. Abe Burroughs.
15: A new musical review called Bless You All opened in New York last night. Now, back in 1758, a guy named Oliver Goldsmith, big hit poet of his day, once wrote a poem for critics. Part of it went like this. Blame where you must, be candid where you can. And be each critic The good-natured man Well, I'm going to discuss Bless You All Like a good-natured man Bless You All Which opened at the Hellinger Theater Stars Jules Munchen Mary McCarty Who was such a wonder and Small Wonder Pearl Bailey And Valerie Bettis Music and lyrics Are by Harold Rome Sketches by Arnold Auerbach Dances by Helen Tamiris It was staged by John C. Wilson And produced by Herman Levin And Oliver Smith
13: All these people Are very,
15: very talented people
13: However,
15: as I said, bless you all as a review, meaning a group of sketches and songs and dances put together with no particular thread or plot line. These things are always a problem. In the old days, there were some great reviews, the Ziegfeld Follies, George White Scandals, Earl Carroll's Vanities, but these shows were only as great as the individual performers. Or in the case of Ziegfeld, they depended on the great man's lavishness. Remember, Mr. Ziegfeld had people working for him named Eddie Cantor, Will Rogers, Ed Wynn, W.C. Fields, Fanny Bryce. A review with all those people in it was really something. But as these great showstoppers left the theater, reviews became increasingly difficult to do. The reason is easy to see. Because there's no storyline, each number has to stand on its own. Each bit has to register instantaneously. The love songs are sung by characters with whom you cannot identify. They're not sung by or to anyone you're rooting for. For instance, in Bless You All, two of the ballads are sung to chairs. A fellow sings one with his hands on an empty chair, and a girl sings a number to two chairs. By the way, there's one credit I forgot. The chairs are excellent. The comedy in Bless You All is also faced with a problem. The sketches are all satirical sketches, and satire these days is tough. General political tension in the world situation eliminates the possibility of political satire. So the subjects are limited. There are a couple of good sketches in the show. Julie Munchen appears in one hilarious bit, a satire on the new antihistamine drugs. And Mary McCarty is wonderful in a sketch which has a parent-teacher's association doing Peter Pan. She flies around the stage. There's a number called TV over the White House which shows what happens when a political candidate campaigns via television. This had a few funny moments. Now about the score... It's an odd thing about the score. You have a strange feeling of having heard everything before. Some of this is intentional, but still... Well, for instance, there's a song called Love Letter to Manhattan, which sounds very much like part of Manhattan Towers. And the punchline of the song is, I'm in love with a wonderful town. Happens a lot. The really fresh thing in the show is the physical production. They were beautiful sets and different. There's one scene in an art gallery that was great. Valerie Bettis danced, and pictures stepped out of their frames and danced with her. Miss Bettis was quite a shining light the other night. She's always very exciting to watch. There are a good many beautiful showgirls with the usual attributes, very well arranged, and very lightly clothed. But this doesn't mean too much to a happily married man. It's
5: roughly 7,000 miles from the front row of the Mark Hallinger Theater to the front lines of Korea food and steel and other war goods that should be moving west aren't because of a spreading railway strike. On Sunday, Secretary of State Dean Acheson heads east for the Brussels Atlantic Pact meetings with the knowledge that today Republicans in both the House and Senate demanded that he resign immediately. But for most Americans and most of the free peoples of the world, the man of this hour of crisis was General Douglas MacArthur. They tell our children about July 4th, 1776. From now on, maybe they'll be telling them about July 5th, 1950. An American soldier was killed in action that day in a country called Korea, the first casualty among the first American troops to fight in the new war. The casualty's name was Private Kenneth Shadrick of Skin Fork, West Virginia. He fought under command of one of the most famous generals in American military history, General Douglas MacArthur. It was the same MacArthur who, a few years younger, had stood on the battleship Missouri off Tokyo Bay and ended World War II, accepted the surrender of the Japanese armed forces on behalf of the Allied powers.
4: As Supreme Commander for the Allied Powers, I announce it my firm purpose in the tradition of the countries I represent to proceed in the discharge of my responsibilities with justice and tolerance while taking all necessary dispositions to ensure that the terms of surrender are fully, promptly, and faithfully complied with. Let's pray that peace be now restored to the world and that God will preserve it always. These proceedings are closed.
5: The peace was not preserved. The man who uttered the prayer now found himself in command of a new army. Green, small, unprepared, fighting where his country's leaders never wanted to fight, against a people they never wanted to fight. A week after American troops went into action, General MacArthur told the world that we weren't doing well. Our retreat was one of the most skillful and heroic holding and rearguard actions in history. Two weeks later, it was July 26th then, General MacArthur paid his second visit to the front. With pride in the achievement of his troops, he told the world, I was never more confident of victory. It seemed that another victory in the MacArthur Manor was in the making. It brought back memories of what he said and did in another war. He had left the Philippines under orders, moved to Australia to plan and prepare for a long, hard campaign back. He spoke in Australia.
4: Two years ago...
6: When I landed on your soil,
4: I said to the people of the Philippines whence I came, I shall return. Tonight, I repeat those words I shall return.
5: Time and battle and many miles and many deaths later, General MacArthur stood on the sands of Leyte in the Philippines. Then on to Tokyo, where he stuck to his job, made few public pronouncements, saw many friendly visitors, told them his plans, his hopes for Japan and for Asia. Once, there was a proud visit to his old friends in the Philippines. It was the great day of independence for the islands.
4: Forty-eight years ago... The mantle of American sovereignty fell over this land and this people. It was the beneficent sovereignty of a liberator, pledged to be withdrawn as soon as the well-being of the people would safely permit. America today redeems that pledge.
5: The general returned to Tokyo to redeem his pledge, a peace treaty for Japan. General MacArthur was to have other great moments in his long, exciting life. Take that day in late September of this year, when he could announce to another people to whom he had made a pledge, the people of South Korea, that Seoul is again in friendly hands. It was just three months after the enemy to the north had crossed the 38th parallel. The United Nations troops moved ahead. There was a pause... And then MacArthur ordered the armies of the United Nations in for the final kill. But something happened. He told us later that the war had been brought to a practical end when alien forces attacked. He told us, we are meeting a new foe, the Chinese communists. It took us three weeks to catch our breath, make our plans. And then again, from the triumphant MacArthur, just before Thanksgiving, a new note of hope. We started a new drive. If successful, for all practical purposes, it should end the war. A few days later, the drive that was to have ended the war collapsed. The Chinese communists, spirited across the yellow boundary, hit us hard. The general reported that we were engaged in an entirely new war. This Tuesday, the general told us, for the time being, the United Nations forces are relatively secure. The enemy plan failed. This morning, he told us, his 10th Corps in Northeast Korea is under attack. The bottomless well of Chinese communism manpower... Continues to overflow into Korea. The enemy mass is moving forward to the east of our 8th Army in the south. And tonight from Seoul, the capital city of South Korea, comes word that the people are starting to move south. Evacuation again. Evacuation of the capital of the country that was admitted to the United Nations two years ago today. Evacuation of the city where less than three months ago President Syngman Rhee and his fellow countrymen bowed their heads. And heard General Douglas MacArthur give thanks for victory with the Lord's Prayer.
4: Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day. forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those that trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but to us.
1: just heard the first program in the new CBS series, Hear It Now, a weekly report to the nation on the week's news, told in the actual recorded voices of the men and women who made the news. Hear It Now is edited and produced by Mr. Murrow and Fred W. Friendly. The combat voices heard earlier in the program were recorded in the field by Armed Forces radio teams and by CBS correspondents. Here It Now originated in New York City, and parts of it were recorded by WTOP, Washington, KMOX, St. Louis, WREC, Memphis, KRLD, Dallas, KCBS, San Francisco, KNX, Los Angeles, KFBB, Great Falls, Montana, WDAE, Tampa, Florida, and WWNC, Asheville, North Carolina. Music was composed by David Diamond and conducted by Alfredo Antonini. The Columbia Broadcasting System and its affiliated stations invite you to listen to the second program in the Hear It Now series next week at the same time. Edward R. Murrow can be heard each weekday evening at 745 Eastern Standard Time over most of these CBS stations. Warren Swinney speaking. Sunday afternoon, December 31st, hear Challenge of the 50s on most of these same CBS network stations. Hear it now will be heard again next Friday at this same time. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System.